Any and all views expressed on the devil and the details are entirely my own. While I am a member of the Church of Satan, I do not speak for the Church of Satan. Devil in the Details. I'm the Satanic Skeptic, and on this episode I'm going to be talking about what in the world of the occult is known as greater magic or ritual magic. It's a topic that I've always wanted to do. When I first came up with the idea for the show, I knew I wanted to do an episode on greater magic. It's a subject that, even among Satanists, is somewhat controversial. Some folks are happy to adopt Satanic symbolism and language, but they'd rather distance themselves from the practice of magic. As a Satanist who is also a skeptic, I personally do not believe in greater magic. I don't practice it. That doesn't mean that I haven't ever tried it or that I'm not willing to examine the evidence that's presented for magic or other psi phenomena, and I'm not embarrassed to acknowledge that, yes, Anton LaVey really believed in magic and practiced magic, and that's part of the Satanic canon. I think whether or not you believe magic actually works in such a way as to create real change in the world it's still a tremendously powerful and useful practice, and those Satanists who close themselves off to the practice are really potentially missing out. Nevertheless, the goal of this episode is going to be a rigorous and dispassionate examination of magic by way of examining the evidence in support of psi phenomena. Why psi phenomena? Because both several prominent members of the Church of Satan, namely High Priest Peter Gilmore and Magister Nemo, as well as author Dean Radin, have argued that magic and psi are the same thing. As Radin explains, When you boil magic down into its essential forms, it's precisely what psi experiments investigate. As such, I'll be examining several works suggested by both Magus Gilmore and Magister Nemo, namely Ingo Swan's Natural ESP, Rupert Sheldrake's The Sense of Being Stared At, and Dean Radin's Real Magic, as well as several more recent meta-analyses on psi phenomena. The information contained within this episode will primarily come from those aforementioned works, as well as James Randi's Flim Flam, James Alcock's Science and Supernature, and his article co-authored with Arthur Reber, Why Parapsychological Claims Cannot Be True. One final point, I'm not a scientist. I proudly consider myself a scientific and atheist cheerleader, something which I know draws a certain amount of scorn from some people. Too bad. I advocate for reason, critical thinking, and a scientific worldview. That said, in matters pertaining to a scientific field of study or statistical analysis, I'm always going to defer to experts for their opinions. I'd like to give a very special thanks to folks like my friend Dave Schumacher, the data skeptic Kyle Pollock, and social psychologist Craig Foster for their help in contributing to this episode. <laughs> First, we need to have some foundational understanding of what we're talking about. What exactly do we mean by magic and psi phenomena? Defining magic is more straightforward, so we'll do that first before we try defining what we mean by psi. For the purposes of this episode, I'm going to be talking, not surprisingly, about satanic magic, so I'm going to be using Anton LaVey's definition of magic from the Satanic Bible. The definition of magic, as used in this book, is the change in situations or events in accordance with one's will, which would, using normally accepted methods, be unchangeable. 
This admittedly leaves a large room for personal interpretation. It will be said by some that these instructions and procedures are nothing more than applied psychology, or a scientific fact, called by magical terminology, until they arrive at a passage in the text that is based on no known scientific finding. It is for this reason that no attempt has been made to limit the explanations set forth to a set nomenclature. Magic is never totally scientifically explainable, but science has always been, at one time or another, considered magic. In the Satanic Scriptures, High Priest Peter Gilmore further explains, Satanists do at times have experience of the supernormal in their practice of ritual or greater magic. This is a technique intended primarily as self-transformational psychodrama, but which may be used as an attempt towards influencing the outcome of human events to desired ends. Additionally, Satanists do not use faith as a tool of cognition, hence there is no requirement to accept greater magic as anything more than self-therapy. It is up to each Satanist to examine any interesting coincidences following their rituals, and based on evidence decide whether more is in motion. For the sake of simplicity, I'll be referring to greater or ritual magic as simply magic from now on. I assume we're all on the same page, and my listeners know I'm not talking about prestidigitation. Based on Magus Gilmore's characterization, I will be examining two separate hypotheses with respect to magic. First, whether or not there is evidence that magic works by mentally influencing the physical world, which makes it analogous to psychokinesis. And second, whether there is evidence that magic works on a personal, individual level, as self-transformative psychodrama. Now that we have some understanding of what magic is, what is psi phenomena that parapsychologists study? According to the 1989 Journal of Humanistic Psychology published by the Parapsychological Association, thanks Dave, apparent anomalies of behavior and experiences that exist apart from currently known explanatory mechanisms that account for organism environment and organism organism information and influence flow. In other words, stuff that happens either between an individual interacting with other individuals or their environment, which can't be explained by conventional means. Sounds a bit like LeVay's definition of magic, doesn't it? As Dean Radin explains in Real Magic, experiments conducted to investigate psi experiences, when viewed through the lens of the esoteric traditions, are testing essentially the same thing as magic. Force of will has been studied in the context of investigating mind-matter interactions, also called psychokinesis or PK. Divination has been studied as variations of clairvoyance or precognition. And theurgy has been investigated in the laboratory, typically in the form of mediumship studies. As explicitly stated in the Satanic Bible, there are three types of ceremony incorporated in the practice of Satanic magic. The lust ritual, which is a love charm or a love spell meant to either create desire on the part of the person whom you desire, or to summon a sex partner to fulfill one's desires. A compassion ritual, meant to help oneself or others. And finally, the destruction ritual, a hex or a curse meant to bring about misfortune to whomever has incurred the magician's wrath. That said, I would consider the totality of satanic magic to fall under the criteria of force of will, and as such I won't be discussing divination or theurgy. Now that we know what magic is, how does one practice magic and how does it work? Magic consists of the performance of a formal ceremony, taking place at least in part, within the confines of an area set aside for such purposes and at a specific time. As Anton LaVey explained, its main function is to isolate the otherwise dissipated adrenal and other emotionally induced energy and convert it into a dynamically transmissible force. It is purely an emotional rather than an intellectual act. Any and all intellectual activity must take place before the ceremony, not during it. 
Because of how LaVey explains magic, I'd like to start by examining the claim that magic works by mentally influencing the physical world. LaVey speaks of converting emotionally induced energy into a dynamically transmissible force, and explains in a little bit more detail about this hypothesized energy in the chapter of the Satanic Bible on the choice of a human sacrifice. The fact of the matter is that if the magician is worthy of his name, he will be uninhibited enough to release the necessary force from his own body instead of from an unwilling and undeserving victim. Contrary to all established magical theory, the release of this force is not affected in the actual spilling of blood, but in the death throes of the living creature. This discharge of bioelectrical energy is the very same phenomenon which occurs during any profound heightening of the emotions, such as sexual orgasm, blind anger, mortal terror, consuming grief, etc. So let's explore whether or not bioelectricity is a viable medium for mentally influencing the physical world. First, we'll need to have some understanding of what exactly bioelectricity is and does. I'll try to keep the chemistry to a minimum. Bioelectricity refers to the creation of electrical potentials within or produced by living organisms. Bioelectric currents refer to the flow of ions, atoms or molecules carrying an electrical charge. Animal cells have semi-permeable membranes, meaning they form selective barrier to ions. Potassium and chloride ions, for example, can diffuse through the membrane fairly easily, whereas sodium ions cannot. Cell membranes therefore store two types of energy chemical energy in the form of ions, and electrical energy in the form of the charges the ions carry. Sodium, potassium, and calcium carry a positive charge, while chloride carries a negative charge. The semipermeability of cell membranes allow cells to maintain concentrations of ions in the systole of the cell. That's the fluid part of the cell's cytoplasm. Different from outside of the cell. Now this difference is what's known as the resting potential, which in most cells is about 50 millivolts. Now ions move across the cell membrane in two ways. First, they can passively move through what are referred to as ion channels, most of which are specific to the ion. Passively, ions can only move from areas of higher concentration to areas of lower concentration through a process known as diffusion. The second way ions can move across cell membranes involves the activity of what's known as an ion pump, or a sodium-potassium pump. The pumps use energy from a nucleotide known as adenosine triphosphate, from everybody's high school uh, science class that would be ATP, the food of the cell, and it uses that to move ions across the cell membrane. For example, the concentration of sodium is approximately 10 times higher outside of the cell than inside the cell, and the concentration of potassium is approximately 20 times higher inside of the cell than outside. Ion pumps will pump three sodium ions outside of the cell for every two potassium ions that are pumped inside at the cost of one molecule of ATP. Ion pumps across the cell work together to maintain this charge difference across the membrane. This flow of electric current is responsible for keeping our heart beating. It's responsible for relaying nerve signals between our limbs and our brain. In short, bioelectricity is what keeps us alive. More remarkably, there's now compelling evidence that bioelectricity is important to wound healing, spinal cord development, and even cell differentiation. For example, recent research conducted by biologist Michael Levin at Tufts University seems to suggest that bioelectric signals influence maturing cells. 
In 2002, Levin and his colleagues experimented on a developing tadpole by disrupting the flow of hydrogen and potassium ions, resulting in the locations of the heart, stomach, and other organs being flipped. This indicates that the flow of these ions could be a primary factor in determining an animal's line of symmetry. Perhaps more intriguingly, preliminary research suggests that doctors might one day be able to tweak these bioelectric currents to spur tissue regeneration and heal wounds. Now that's all quite remarkable, and it's an accepted fact that various electromagnetic fields and radiation are emitted from the body and are detectable in standard medical practice. But the question is, what, if anything, can these electromagnetic fields do that might relate to magic? There's a lot of speculation, particularly in the world of alternative medicine, where these electromagnetic fields and radiation are repackaged under the concept of biofields, trying to add an air of legitimacy to age-old concepts like Qigong and Rai Qi by combining them with generous interpretations of ideas from quantum physics. I reached out to Michael Levin and asked him about the potential relationship between bioelectricity and magic, but unfortunately, his only response was, I'm not saying anything about magic or any relationship of these biophysical mechanisms to emotions. All I can say is that cells do produce electromagnetic fields that are detectable at some distance. What, if anything, they do is a whole other matter that isn't really well understood yet. I believe there's good reason to doubt that bioelectrical fields could be powerful enough to interact with the physical world external to the human body in any meaningful way. Why? Because a human being can only generate between 10 to 100 millivolts. By way of comparison, the lithium batteries that power our smartphones are about 3.8 volts, or 3800 millivolts. Simply put, if we're talking about putting an idea in someone's head, it doesn't seem as though the human body can generate enough electricity to do with magic what a smartphone already can. Even if it were possible for thought transference to take place via the medium of bioelectricity, I believe any magician worth his salt would spare the effort and send a text message instead. Another possible explanatory mechanism that I think fits with Anton LaVey's definition of magic might be what are known as biophotons. A photon is one of the elementary particles of the universe, a quantum of electromagnetic radiation, essentially a particle of light. Biophotons are ultra-weak light emissions in the ultraviolet and low-visible light range originating from biological matter. Some experiments by Dada and Persinger suggest that visualizing white light consistently produced an increase in biophoton emission compared to both mundane thoughts and baseline condition, and therefore suggest a relationship between visualization, intention, and BPE. More remarkably, Dada and Persinger claim they found evidence of potential transference of non-local information in the context of human brain activity and cerebral photons. For example, in their article, Cerebral Biophoton Emission as a Potential Factor in Non-Local Human-Machine Interaction, they claim to have found evidence that by focusing their attention on a random event generator, participants would be able to significantly affect the deviations of the device processes and that this would be correlated with measurable changes in BPE. Now, as you could probably guess, I'm skeptical of these results. We know how photons work. Nothing about our current understanding of how photons work, how they interact with other elementary particles, suggests that something like intention can be transmitted via photons in the way the experiments by Dada and Persinger suggest. 
I think there's good reason to be skeptical when doubting that there's something about photons that we don't know. We have to keep in mind we're talking about very, very weak forces, which are only detectable in a lab with very, very expensive, sensitive equipment that are competing with all the other much stronger forces of the universe. You'd have to demonstrate how biophoton emissions wouldn't just get lost in all that noise. Furthermore, while being able to psychically influence a random number generator would be amazing on its own, that's still a far cry from being able to curse people or bring good luck. So let's consider a few more examples. Magus Gilmore himself has mentioned several possible explanations of how greater magic might work. First, in the Satanic Scriptures, Magus Gilmore offers a theory advanced by Ingo Swan in his natural ESP suggests that there may be a gateway through the most primitive part of the brain by which thoughts and imagery might be in some way broadcast to other minds when fueled by extreme emotional experiences. We Satanists see this as a possible means for greater magic to impact the world outside of the ritual chamber. Swan defines ESP as, What we call extrasensory perception is the result of an external sensing by which information and knowledge is contacted and through subliminal processes, brought into consciousness without the use of any of the known physical senses. Okay, that seems like a pretty good working definition of ESP. As far as Magus Gilmore's statement about the most primitive part of the brain and all that, the closest I can make out is what Swan refers to as the deeper self, which participates with the interconnected information universe, the second reality, a concept which Swan seems to have derived from a poor understanding of quantum physics, of course. It's always quantum physics. Swan believes this deeper self acts to selectively filter information, much like the Freudian sensor, so that there are natural barriers between consciousness and an overwhelming influx of second reality information. The barriers the deeper self erects are not impenetrable, and Swan argues that information which is meaningful to the individual manages to get through. One of the examples Swan tells of, which of course there is no attempt made to verify the authenticity of, is of a mother who, through ESP, found her son dead of a motorcycle accident. While natural ESP has many, many elaborate diagrams and charts detailing how ESP works in theory, there really isn't anything in the way of actual evidence or studies that are presented as proof. And this is perhaps not surprising, as Swan was not himself a scientist. Indeed, Swan assures the reader, Parapsychology has given sufficient clinical testing to the phenomena so that it is practically impossible to deny they exist. The proof is actually quite colossal. There's good reason for doubting both of those claims, but we'll get to that later. It's not at all surprising that Swan would consider the question of ESP settled, as he was also very much convinced of his own psychic abilities. You see, Swan was part of the infamous CIA-funded psi program, Project Stargate, conducted at the Stanford Research Institute International in 1978, directed by Harold Puthoff, PhD in electrical engineering, who, along with Russell Targ, became convinced that both Swan and the notorious Israeli spoonbender Uri Geller were genuine psychics. Swan wrote of Project Stargate, The results of these experiments demonstrate raw core ESP, often almost identical to the historic work we've discussed. The untapped pool of psychic giftedness has once again been tapped, demonstrating the prevalence of its existence in the spectrum of human talents. That's high praise, so perhaps we better examine some of these experiments. One such experiment was conducted in 1972, in which Swan was tasked with psychically affecting the magnetic field of a magnetometer. Swan placed his attention on the interior of the magnetometer, at which time the frequency of the output doubled for about 30 seconds. When asked if he could stop the field of change, Swan allegedly did just that. 
perhaps most convincingly, when Targan Puthoff asked Swan to stop thinking about the apparatus, it resumed its normal pattern. That's pretty impressive, right? Interestingly, Dr. Arthur F. Hebert, the man who built the magnetometer, happened to witness this demonstration, and had a much different recollection, telling James Randi that Swan had stood for 10 to 15 minutes staring at the magnetometer after Targan Puthoff instructed him to do something. They did not at any time ask him to stop the field change. Once the charts had leveled out, Targan Puthoff concluded they had observed an effect. At one point, the chart curve burped, and Hebbard claimed Swan asked Targan Puthoff, is that what I'm supposed to do? At one point, Swan walked away from the machine to another part of the lab, and when Targan Puthoff saw the chart recorder jump, which I will share a much more plausible answer as to why that happened shortly, they asked Swan, did you do that too? To which Swan happily agreed. When the details of Targan Puthoff's report was shared with Dr. Hebert, he replied, I find it incredible that no one bothered to check with me as you did, you in this case being James Randi. Targan Puthoff jumped to a lot of conclusions. They were overzealous and made hasty connection between the general and the specific. There were many things which could have caused what we saw. Back up in the helium line, which was used by many different people in both buildings, there could have done it. It had happened before. The fact that Mr. Swan was not able to reproduce the effect on subsequent attempts on a later date lends credence to the view that the initial event was accidental. In other words, the irregularities in the line were easily explained by venting changes in other parts of the university lab complex. Targan Puthoff eagerly accepted any irregularities as proof of Swan's psychic abilities. More remarkably, rather than attributing the machine working normally to, you know, the machine working normally, Targan Puthoff took that as a sign that Swan was no longer using his incredible powers, demonstrating raw core ESP indeed. Later, in 1978, Swan would claim to have taken an astral trip to the planets Mercury and Jupiter, coming back and describing details he observed which were unknown to astronomers at the time and would remain so until the voyages of the Mariner 10 and Pioneer 10 satellites. Targ and Puthoff were very pleased with Swan's account, and Puthoff noted that there were remarkable similarities between Swan's narration of events and another alleged psychic who had taken a similar trip as part of their project, Harold Sherman. Puthoff, however, would later let slip that Swan had actually spoken with Sherman prior to Sherman's own astral trip. I wonder what they might have talked about. The weather on Earth, perhaps? When comparing Swan and Sherman's claims to the facts about both planets, we get a very different picture from that which Targ and Puthoff were very pleased. Of those statements which Swan and Sherman made, the percentage of hits, and were being charitable in counting their hits, was 37%. The percentage of their misses was 46%. Not exactly what I would call demonstrating the prevalence of the existence of ESP in the spectrum of human talents. Those results were no better than chance, and while we're discussing the accuracy of Swan's psychic abilities, I couldn't fail to mention that Swan also fancied himself a psychic detective, but admitted that out of the 25 criminal investigations he claimed to have worked between 1972 and 1975, 22 were flops, and only 3 were counted as successes. Not exactly encouraging. We may only hope that they were not kidnapping cases or homicide investigations. Another possible explanatory mechanism for greater magic mentioned by Magus Gilmore comes from the work of Rupert Sheldrake. In his article, Satanic Ritual, Magus Gilmore tells us, 
Biologist Rupert Sheldrake has documented phenomena of the extended mind, such as people's pets sensing from a distance the time their owners are deciding to return home, as well as the feeling that you're being stared at by someone else, even when you don't see the person doing the staring. These could be supernormal abilities for which talent at either sending or receiving would be required, so results would probably not be the same for every person. By extended mind, Sheldrake means that minds are not confined by the physical brain, but stretch out into the world around bodies, through what he calls morphic fields, and a phenomenon known as morphic resonance. As Sheldrake explains, morphic resonance is a connection across time from the past to the present, and it's a process that occurs between organized patterns of activity on the basis of similarity. What it means in effect is that each species has a kind of collective memory, so every giraffe tunes in by morphic resonance to the form and the behavior of previous giraffes. Every crystal, as it crystallizes, tunes into the way that previous crystals of the same chemical crystallized in the past. So there's a kind of memory given by morphic resonance to all kinds of things. Basically, an energy field created by all living things that surrounds us and penetrates us and binds the galaxy together. Where have I heard that before? This idea of a cosmic memory is not new or unique to Sheldrake's thought. Occultist H.P. Blavatsky, who co-founded the Theosophical Society, referred to a universal life force that recorded human thought and both past and present actions, an idea which crystallized into the idea of Akashic Records by fellow theosophist Alfred Percy Sinnott. More famously, theosophist Rudolf Steiner discussed the concept of the Akashic Records, and self-proclaimed clairvoyant Edgar Cayce claimed to have direct access to them. According to Sheldrake's hypothesis, the morphic fields of mental activities are called mental fields. Through mental fields, the extended mind reaches out into the environment through attention and intention, and connects with other members of social groups. These fields help explain telepathy, the sense of being stared at, clairvoyance, and psychokinesis. They may also help in the understanding of premonitions and precognitions through intentions projecting into the future. There's a lot that could be said for Sheldrake and his morphic resonance. Too much to go into in any great detail here. Ultimately, despite what Sheldrake says, it's an unscientific hypothesis. Unscientific because it's unfalsifiable. Sheldrake's mental fields are a mechanism proposed to explain alleged psi phenomena, but laboratory experiments can only demonstrate whether or not psi phenomena was observed under specific conditions. Rather than accept a problem with replicability as evidence that psi phenomena might not be real, Sheldrake has dismissed negative results in the past as due to skeptical influence. Always the believer is ace in the hole. When he's right, he's right. When he's wrong, he's still right. Furthermore, there's no experiment that has as yet detected the existence of anything like mental or morphic fields. Indeed, according to quantum field theory, such fields cannot exist. But we'll get to that in a minute. I'd like to move on to another author, Dean Radin. Specifically, I want to focus on Radin's book, Real Magic, which, although I disagree with his conclusions and take issue with the fact that in his discussion of the history of magic up to the modern day, he makes absolutely no mention of Anton LaVey, I still think it's a great book and well worth the read. From the outset, Radin argues, after decades of conducting psi experiments, publishing many journal articles describing the results, and reviewing thousands of other experiments in my popular books, I've come to accept that psi is a real phenomenon. I base my assessment on the fact that telepathy, clairvoyance, precognition, and psychokinetic effects have all been independently repeated in laboratories around the world. Effects we see in the lab tend to be rather small because by design they must be demonstrated on demand under strictly controlled conditions but the magnitude of an effect is irrelevant if you're interested in whether the effect exists. 
With respect to that last part, I believe what Raiden is referring to is the difference between effect size and statistical significance, or p-value, which, since I'm a little rusty on my stats, I'll let my friend Dave Schumacher explain. Effect size measures magnitude of the experimental effect or the strength of the association. The actual number and its interpretation depends on effect size stat calculated. The p-value tells you whether or not it is unlikely that the null hypothesis is true. It is the probability of obtaining results at least as extreme as the observed results of a statistical hypothesis test, or how likely your data could have occurred under a null hypothesis. P-values tell you whether or not the experiment or intervention worked, and effect size tells you how much it worked. Unfortunately, it's beyond the scope of this single episode to really explore any one study in the detail it deserves. As such, I fully admit, it's difficult for me to have an informed opinion. When I reached out to scientist Craig Foster, he expressed the same sentiment. In this case, I reached out to Craig about a meta-analysis published in 2018 in The American Psychologist by Etzel Cardena. As Craig explained, the discussion really needs to be focused on the evidence. Psi is testable, although promoters can, when pressed, fall into making it non-falsifiable by claiming that their powers sometimes come and go, where come means when they're right and go means when they're wrong. Whether the evidence suggests Psi requires understanding exactly what occurred in each of the included studies and guessing how many studies were omitted. Craig did not have the time to dig into the study, but he brought up several important points which I believe are instructive in any examination of Psi claims. One issue, and this holds true for all studies, not just meta-analyses, are whether or not the studies are controlled properly. Even when certain research methodologies have been thoroughly discredited, and Craig used the example of facilitated communication, some researchers may still use them. Second, Craig explained there is potentially a problem with testing many people and then selecting high-performing participants as having psi-related powers. The obvious problem is that people will perform well or poorly just due to chance, so selecting only high-performing participants doesn't necessarily demonstrate psi, but could be due to chance. Now, if those participants could repeatedly show psi over and over, I think people would start to become convinced. So, why didn't that happen? Did the researchers just let those participants leave despite their amazing powers? Did the participants decide they didn't want to be known for having some seemingly superhuman ability? It seems odd. Researchers can generate false positives by testing 50 participants, selecting those who performed best due to chance some participants will have above average hit rates, retesting those participants once, and even if they just perform at chance the second time, you'll still have an above average effect. Another problem that isn't unique to Psi research is what's known as the file drawer effect, that is, not publishing studies in which there were no significant results. As Craig explained, this can be a tricky subject. It can be difficult as a researcher to get everything correct in research to demonstrate an effect. Research can fail because the variables aren't measured correctly, or they aren't manipulated correctly, or the participants aren't engaged, or there's too much error, or just bad luck. It makes some sense to admit those junky failures that don't work. The flip side is that researchers can run five studies, pick the one study that works, not report the permutations, and create a sizable file drawer effect. Now, none of that's to say that Psi research has any more of a problem with respect to scientific standards than any other branch of science. Certainly there have been very notable past examples of bad research practices. The work of Targ and Puthoff I previously mentioned are perhaps some of the most well-known examples. Maintaining consistent scientific standards is crucial. If an effect is real, even if it's small, you should be able to predict under what conditions the effect will be observed, 
and those effects need to be observed to occur with a frequency unlikely to be attributable to pure chance. According to Radin, the question of whether or not psi exists has pretty much been settled for psi researchers, because the data are clear. So, why haven't mainstream scientists accepted the same conclusion? Radin tells us, I'm confident that the dismissive skeptical opinion is wrong. In my opinion, the primary reason for the continuing uncertainty is due to assumptions about the nature of reality that are formalized within the scientific worldview as inviolate or absolute. Then the strength and quality of the evidence for psi simply doesn't matter. The phenomena are considered impossible, and that's that. Raven never actually explains what these assumptions are. He merely criticizes scientists and skeptics for declaring outright that psi is impossible, let alone examining the data. Now, regardless of whether or not one should reject psi out of hand, there are plenty of reasons why scientists might not be interested in reviewing the data. First of all, to really do it justice, reviewing an experiment takes time carefully scrutinizing the methodology. Many scientists just don't have that luxury. Second, like with everything, there's a dollar value attached to conducting scientific research. Fieldwork, lab equipment, travel expenses, all these things cost money, and that money doesn't just fall from the sky. Although I suppose one way scientists could test the validity of magic would be to conduct compassion rituals to bring in funding. Science requires funding, and the people who provide that funding expect their money to be put to good use. So it's no surprise that topics that are considered fringe, like it or not, are not given the same kind of funding as more mainstream pursuits. Now, I believe these are all reasons why it is important for skeptics, no matter how jaded, to step in. If actual scientists don't have the time or money to examine extraordinary claims, then it's up to us science-adjacent people to do so, and then report to scientists, report to the experts, hey, you might want to look at this, we got, you know, we might have something here. But for those scientists who won't even look at the data, but reject psi phenomena on principle, I think it's misleading to say, well, they won't even look at it because of assumptions. They assume certain things to be true about the universe, and that means that psi can't be real. How close-minded of them. Although Raiden won't tell us exactly what these assumptions are, let's consider what these assumptions have given scientists, what scientists have been able to predict and understand and do because of these assumptions, and just what exactly would be at stake for scientists to abandon them for the sake of accepting claims of psi phenomena. The most powerful and accurate theory we as human beings have about the way the universe works is what is known as quantum field theory. As Sean Carroll explained in his talk, From Particles to People, at the Amazing Meeting in 2012, quantum field theory is the most successful theory we have in all of science. It's been the most precisely tested. It's a very simple idea. Everything is fields. There's no such thing as particles. Particles are what you see when you look at fields very, very closely. What we understand as matter comes from fermion fields, particles such as protons, electrons, and quarks. The forces of nature have their own particles. Gravity has the graviton, it comes from the gravitational field. Light, the photon, and it comes from the electromagnetic field. Quantum field theory has the most predictive power of any scientific theory, and there is absolutely nothing to suggest that it's incorrect. Those last two parts are especially important because one of the most profound implications of quantum field theory is that, on the scale of our daily lives, how we, as humans, experience the world, we understand how the world works. 
everything that is relevant to us as human beings is due to three particles, protons, neutrons, and electrons, interacting through the forces of gravity, electromagnetism, and nuclear force. That's it. There's no room for any other particles or forces. In fact, there can't be, because in order to account for something like psi phenomena, any such particles or forces would necessarily have to be interacting with those fields and particles that we do know about. And if they were, we'd already have observed those interactions. Now, that's not to say that there may not be undiscovered fields or particles. There probably are. But the reason they're undiscovered, the reason we don't know about them already, is because their interactions are so weak, they have no meaningful, discernible impact on our daily life. These particles, like dark matter for example, are constantly passing through us and don't affect us at all. You'd never know they were there, and they can't account for alleged psi phenomena because of that. Now, believers in psi phenomena may naturally object, well how do you know our understanding of the universe is complete? Isn't it arrogant? Isn't it unscientific to say, this is impossible? Well, okay, sure, it's not impossible that psi phenomena is real. It's possible that quantum field theory is fundamentally wrong or incomplete. It's possible that some people might be capable of violating the laws of physics with exceptional powers. But the question is, how likely is that? Should scientists reject the fundamental assumptions they make, which has given us the remarkably powerful and accurate quantum field theory, because the implications of those assumptions are that psi phenomena can't exist? The predictive power and accuracy that quantum field theory gives us is such that the evidence for it being wrong or incomplete would have to be exceptionally strong. Now, again, I'm not a scientist. I don't really know jack shit about physics or quantum mechanics. I took the dumb kids class in college, and my professor openly acknowledged that all of our tests were open book, and all you had to do was show up for class. But it seems to me that if psi phenomena, if magic, contradicts one of the most accepted and successful theories in all of science, and the argument is that because of all those experiments which seem to indicate that psi phenomena is real, you've got to demonstrate, convincingly, that either there really is no contradiction, or quantum field theory is wrong in some way. Until you can do either of those things, mainstream science is not going to accept the existence of psi phenomena. I'm not saying we shouldn't look at the evidence, but I'm saying you're going to need more than a bunch of studies with potentially significant results. You're going to have to really fucking bring it. much sums up my thoughts on the first hypothesis, that magic works in such a way as to influence the external world. But what about the second, that magic works as self-transformative psychodrama? Well, there's a plethora of evidence that belief in magic can enhance cognitive functioning, such as creative thinking, perception, and memory. For example, Sabotsky, Heisted, and Jones in 2010 conducted an experiment where children ages 4 and 6 were divided into experimental and control conditions, and were both shown clips from Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. The experimental group was shown clips in which magic was present, and the control conditions were shown clips which the, with the same characters and no magic present. The clips were matched on other variables such as pace, action, and emotional content. After the children were presented with the clips, they were tested on identical sets of creativity tasks. 
The results indicated that after, but not before, exposure to the film clips, children in the experimental condition scored significantly higher than controls on the majority of tasks, thus supporting the expectation that engagement in magical thinking enhances the creativity of realistic thinking. Both anthropologists and psychologists who have studied the history of magical thinking and superstition believe that, fundamentally, magic is a means of asserting control over the chaos of the universe, but especially during times of trouble. From George Homan's 1941 journal article in The American Anthropologist, Anxiety and Ritual, The Theories of Malinowski and Radcliffe Brown, to a 2011 study by Sosis and Handwerker, in which they examined the religious behavior of Israeli women during the 2006 Lebanon War, there is an abundance of evidence that people's behavior tends to be more ritualized under conditions of prolonged stress, such as warfare, or maybe a global pandemic? Now why might that be the case? As a 2018 article by Fatik Mandel, published in the International Journal of Psychology and Behavioral Science explains, superstition has its roots in our species' youth, when our ancestors could not understand the forces and whims of the natural world. Furthermore, there's evidence to suggest that by alleviating anxiety, superstitious beliefs in magical thinking may actually improve performance. Stuart Feiss, author of Believing in Magic, The Psychology of Superstition, explains, the absence of control over an important outcome creates anxiety. So, even when we know on a rational level that there is no magic, superstitions can be maintained by their emotional benefit. Much like a placebo, magic can work whether you believe in it or not. Examples of magical rituals are abundant and persist even among those who profess no such belief. Crossing your fingers, uttering phrases such as break a leg, good luck, or warning others, of, uh, warning others against jinxing something, these are all examples of magical thinking that have become so ingrained in our cultural practices that we don't even think twice about them and find it very difficult to break the habit of engaging in them. Even if someone recognizes that they're engaging in magical thinking or superstitious thinking, they may be loath to give up the practice for fear of tempting fate. When the cost of carrying out the behavior or engaging in magical thinking is relatively low, the perceived benefits grossly outweigh the imagined consequences of not adhering to the superstition. The problem is when the cost becomes too high, or someone relies on magic to fix all of their problems, and I believe that's something that even Anton LaVey would have agreed with. LaVey was always quick to warn the people who would come to him expecting magic to solve all their problems without putting in any actual work that they would be sorely disappointed. He also never claimed that magic could fix everything, referring to what he called the balance factor, and instructing people to be more realistic about what they hoped to achieve. Magic is something where I think atheists have it all wrong. I also think that in their effort to distance themselves from Anton LaVey and the Church of Satan and find acceptance and support from the secular atheist community, the Satanic Temple, rejecting the practice of ritual magic, completely throws the baby out with the bathwater. And again, I'm not somebody who practices formal ritual magic. The act of creating something, whether it be a podcast episode or an article, that's my magic working my will to bring something into the world that previously did not exist. Uh, but just because I don't practice ritual magic in, in the formal sense, and I don't believe it works in any, uh, any such way other than on myself, I do believe it has scientifically proven demonstrable benefits that people deprive themselves of out of a misplaced fear and disdain of the irrational. Magical thinking is innate, 
it's an evolved feature of our cognition. Sure, it can be dangerous when it causes us to fear, distrust, and mistreat people when we have no reason to, uh, when we engage in xenophobia. It can be dangerous when it becomes stultifying, when it retards progress and learning, when we're so desperate to believe and exert some kind of control over our lives that we turn what little control we do have over to a charismatic leader, when we allow ourselves to be hoodwinked and sucked dry by grief vampires and grifters, promising easy solutions to all of our problems. But it doesn't have to be. There's nothing wrong with allowing yourself to be fooled, so long as you know who is doing the fooling. When you watch a movie, or a TV show, or a magic trick, you know that it isn't real. You know that the tragedy and the drama and the horror that makes you anxious, scared, sad, or triumphant is all fantasy. But you still feel all those emotions anyway. You allow yourself to be swept up in the fantasy. You take your thinking cap off and leave it at the door. You engage in a willing suspension of disbelief for the sake of enjoyment. It's the same thing with ritual magic, I think. I'd like to close quoting some excerpts from a wonderful article that Suzanne Moore wrote for The Guardian back in 2013. I think her observations are on point and are the same conclusions that Anton LaVey was ahead of his time in reaching back in the 60s. One of the problems I have with the new atheism is that it fixates on ethics, ignoring aesthetics at its peril. For me, not believing in God does not mean one has to forgo poetry, magic, the chaos of ritual, the making of shared bonds. I fear ultra-Orthodox atheism has come to resemble a rigid and patriarchal faith itself. This is not about reclaiming feeling as a female and reason as male. Put simply, it seems to be fundamentally human to seek narratives, find patterns, and create rituals to include others in the meanings we make. If we want a more secular society, and we most certainly do, there's nothing wrong with making it look and feel good. The devil of doubt calls forth mankind to challenge all things, question all things. May the Luciferian light of reason guide you on your way ever forward. Hail science. Hail reason. Hail Satan.